So uh, we just came off of a few weeks talking about, you guys remember, talking about love, and that was fun, and we did all that, and you broke up with your girlfriend and boyfriend, congratulations, and now you're here looking again, hope you find somebody, just kidding, Uh, be single for a minute, it's okay. And uh, we talked about love and dating and all that good stuff, and so now we're going into the next thing. We had our night of worship two weeks ago, and that was powerful, I love worshiping with you guys. And uh, going into the next series, the next kind of uh, few talks, and I'm really pumped to be talking about something new. I was telling some people before the service, I believe with all my heart that actually the next three weeks that we're going to be in this could be uh, possibly some of the most impactful and maybe one of the most transformational series that we do uh, in your life personally. And here's why I believe that. I really believe that uh, what God wants to do in you is way more than what happens here on Thursday night. And uh, it would be like God to want to take you on a spiritual journey that would be beyond Thursday night. And so what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks is really coming under this idea of spiritual growth. And what does it look like for you to grow spiritually uh, beyond what happens on Thursday night. I hope you love Thursday nights. I hope you continue to come. I know I'll still be here because I love them. Uh, but I really want you to take it beyond here. And I want you to get on this journey of spiritual growth because that's what God wants for you. And he didn't design you to just come to church. He designed you to walk with him outside of church. And so we've had a couple people asking like, hey, I really feel like God's doing something in my life, but I want to go deeper. I want to take the next step. I want to do something else. And so this series is designed to kind of walk into that and to give you some practical ways that you can do that because your faith is meant to grow. Turn to someone and say, you're meant to grow. Your faith is meant to grow, not meant to just exist. Your faith is not meant for you just to be stagnant. Your faith is meant for you to take steps forward. And so I want to talk for the next few weeks about spiritual growth. Now, I don't know if maybe if you've ever tried to uh, grow muscularly, like in exercise. Anybody love working out? Amen. Praise the Lord for you guys. Uh, Good for you. Anybody hate working out? Maybe that's the better question. Okay, good. Uh, I don't know if you've ever gotten, if you've uh, like walked into the journey of trying to grow your muscular strength Maybe some of you don't actually care about strength. You just care about muscular appearance. Shout out, curls for the girls. You guys hear that? That's what all the guys do in the gym. We call them curls for the girls. They don't care about anything else. Hashtag leg day. You don't care about leg day, just curls for the girls. That's, I'm, I'm revealing all of our secrets. Um, Hassan, I know. Okay. Um, so I don't know if, if you've ever tried to like grow in muscular strength, but if you have, here's what you know. First of all, it doesn't just happen by itself, right? It doesn't just happen by itself. It actually takes effort. It takes effort to grow in strength physically, right? But even further than effort, it takes disciplined effort. Would you write that down if you're taking notes? It takes disciplined effort. And the reason why I say it takes disciplined effort is because effort... Well, you can put in effort like once a week, but is once a week going to help you actually grow in physical strength? Okay, there we go. The personal trainer said no. 
Um, no, not really. It's not going to help you once a week. It may be better than zero times a week, but if you're really trying to grow in physical strength, it's going to take more than just effort. It's going to take disciplined effort because disciplined effort will get your butt in the gym like more than once a week, like every day or maybe four to five times a week. And it'll also get you doing the right exercises that'll help you really grow that bicep, right? It'll also help you like discipline will cause you to get on the right kind of diet so that your muscular gains in the gym are not just like lost, but you actually begin to fuel your muscles. All this biological stuff that I know uh, some of you know better than I do, right? Discipline effort. I want to make the analogy tonight and for the rest of the series really that it's the same with your spiritual walk. It takes a disciplined effort for you to grow spiritually. And the reason that's important is because there are a couple dangers that I want to highlight tonight that will prevent you from growing spiritually. In fact, I would even call them spiritual dangers that will prevent growth. And the reason why I say they're spiritual dangers is because sometimes they sound actually spiritual. They sound good. But I want to warn you tonight that they're not good and that they're dangers to your spiritual growth. So first one, just to let you know tonight, first spiritual danger is relying on church gatherings like this. We've already talked about it. Relying on church gatherings like this to fuel your growth. That is not going to fuel your growth. It's going to encourage you. It's going to inspire you. It's going to maybe help you learn some things. It's going to, I hope, bring us into the presence of God, which can do a ton. But it's not going to fuel your spiritual growth. It's going to take more than just a Thursday night to get you growing spiritually. And if I were to take a poll and say, how many of you want to grow spiritually? I bet most of us would say yes. The question is, are you willing to put the disciplined effort into it outside of just coming to church. Now, if you're new to faith, you're new to the church thing, man, keep coming, just come as much as you want. I hope this, I hope this does a ton for you. But eventually, our prayer for you is that you would get on a spiritual growth path that would go outside of just these walls on Thursday night. Second danger that I see is settling for likeness and disregarding nearness. One of... Uh, one of the pastors, the pastors at this church came in last year and taught for me while I was out of town. Actually, I was out of the country. And uh, his name is Miles Welch. And he taught on this topic that uh, likeness is good, but nearness is better. Because you can have likeness to Christ without being near to Christ. But it's impossible for you to have nearness to him and not to become like him. The reason why I say the danger is settling for likeness and disregarding nearness is because some of you have been Christians for a long time now or quite some time now. You've been doing the faith thing for some time now. And your life, you would say, is becoming a lot like Christ. You've maybe gotten, you've figured out some of the do's and don'ts, right, that kind of thing. Maybe you have uh, conquered those sin habits that you used to struggle with, and now you feel like you've got a, grips on, you've got a grip on those. So your likeness is good to go, but the danger is that you can rely on likeness and begin to disregard nearness. And I want to challenge you that spiritual growth involves nearness to God. And so no matter how like him you think you are, 
Spiritual growth always, always, always pushes and leans into nearness. Third danger that I see is viewing growth as effortless. You can begin to view growth as effortless. Now, we wouldn't use this word effortless, but we would use this word that's real trendy, kind of hipster. We would use the word organic. I don't know why you just kind of have to smile and do that when you say organic, right? We like the idea of spiritual growth being organic. It just kind of happens. Organic means uh, like there, it wasn't a strain. I wrote down a few things. Organic, it's, it's natural. It's unforced. It happened because it was supposed to happen. But I want to challenge you tonight that your relationship to God is because of him. And so in that way, it's organic because he reached down to you. You didn't do anything to deserve it. But when you talk about spiritual growth, growing closer to him, growing in your maturity as a Christian, that's not organic. That actually takes effort. That takes actually leaning into things. That takes actually uh, some discipline to begin to grow. That's not an organic thing that just happens. Now, this would be a good time to kind of distinguish between what is God's role in my growth and what is my role in my growth. So God's work within you, you need to know this, God's work within you, whether it is salvation or spiritual growth, is exactly that. It is his work within you. It is what only he can do. It's not due to your skill, your will, your dedication. It is his work in you. Your inner spiritual condition is like an artist's tapestry in which you are not the artist. He is. He is painting this picture of your spiritual growth, and you are not the artist. If you want to get theological here, you could say that your justification and your sanctification basically means your salvation, the moment you came to know Christ, and your growth in him, you growing closer to him, your justification and sanctification is purely him working in you. It's his job in you by which you purely just receive. It's a gift, a gift of God, a gift of God that he would save you and a gift of God that he would grow you. So does that mean that there is nothing we can do to grow spiritually? Absolutely not. And so I want to talk for the next few weeks on the topic of what we call spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. You may have heard it before, but uh, we're going to cover a few of like the main spiritual disciplines. And uh, the reason is because spiritual disciplines allow you to put yourself before God so that he can transform you and grow you. So make that distinction. You are not doing the transforming and growing. You are putting yourself before God in such a way, you can say open-handedly, fully surrendered to him and allow him, allowing him to do the growth and the transforming of your life. Does that make sense? So God's growth, growing you up, is purely his kindness, his goodness, his graciousness in your life that he would do that. What a kindness that he would do that for us. So we're going to talk about the spiritual disciplines. Now, I want to write something on the board for us tonight to maybe punch this home a little bit and bring it some clarity. It's massive. 
markers. So we talk about the path of spiritual growth. Let's say this is the path of spiritual growth. You want to get on this path. On this path is where God begins to mold you and grow you into who he has called you to be, into a follower of him, whatever that looks like. This is the path, and you want to get on that. When we talk about spiritual disciplines, these spiritual disciplines are almost like these many paths that lead you into the growth path. The disciplines that you will put yourself under, just like any discipline in life, the disciplines that you will surrender yourself to are like many paths that point you into the spiritual growth path. And once you get in there, God begins to transform you and he begins to grow you up. You could call this path the path of disciplined grace. See what I did there? Do you not? It's on the screen if you didn't. Discipline, grace. It's because your discipline got you there, but it's the grace of Jesus that would save you and grow you up in looking more like him. Make sense? This is so important because most of us, it's not that we don't want to grow. It's that we don't know how to grow. It's not that we don't want to grow closer to God, not that we don't want to be on a spiritual growth path. It's that we don't know how to grow. We don't know how to. Or we don't have the discipline to die to ourselves so that we can get into the spiritual growth path. And getting into the spiritual growth path will require that you die to yourself. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. So what are the spiritual disciplines? What are the spiritual disciplines? There's a book by a guy named Richard Foster. I know those of you in school are like, yay, another book. Can't wait to read more books. Uh, There's a book by a guy named Richard Foster. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. It really covers this. It was written back in 1978. But to those of us that read a lot of like spiritual books, this is a spiritual classic of a book. And I would encourage you if you have time or if you want to make time, this is a great book to pick up. It's called... um, What did I say it's called? Just kidding. It's by a guy named Richard Foster. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. Anyways, in this book, he points out 12 different disciplines, 12 different kind of mini paths that get you into the spiritual growth path. I want to look at all 12 of them just so that you know what they are, okay? The first kind of section that he points out are the outward disciplines, which are simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. And all 12 of these are outlined in Scripture. points out to you, like, here's why these are disciplines that you can uh, begin to adopt in your life. Outward disciplines, inward disciplines, meditation, fasting, prayer, and study. Corporate disciplines, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. Now, some of these disciplines are like lifelong, like, hey, I want, I want this to be a lifelong discipline that I adopt in my life. For example, service. I want to constantly be a servant. I want to find people to serve. I want to uh, have places to serve in. That's a lifelong discipline. Uh, fasting is not a lifelong discipline that you want to have. If you fast like your whole life, you're going to die, right? 
So that's not a lifelong discipline that you want. So some of these are seasonal disciplines. So for this season that I'm going into, I'm going to go after this discipline. And the hope is that as I go after this discipline, it will kind of launch me or feed me into a growth path. And, um, yeah, so all three of these, like, categories. What we're going to do is tonight I'm going to focus on one of the outward disciplines. And then for the next two weeks we're going to hit some other ones. But it's important that you know this as we get started. By themselves, these spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to a place where something can be done. By itself, fasting cannot do anything for you. But fasting can get you into a place where something can be done. So, There is no power to change in the disciplines. They do not produce change. They only place us where change can occur. The disciplines do not produce change. They only place us where change can occur. They are God's means of pouring out his grace on us so that we can grow in faith. I hope and pray that in the next few weeks you will decide to adopt some of these disciplines in your life and watch what God will do. So tonight I want to talk about the spiritual discipline of simplicity. Spiritual discipline of simplicity. Some of you were like, gosh, I was hoping he would talk about solitude. Anybody want to talk about solitude? Nope. Get the book and read it. It's good. So as we get into simplicity, what is simplicity? As we get going first, let's level the playing field, okay? How many of you, and it's more, more than just this, but this will get us going. How many of you would like to have more money? Everyone's hands raised, right? I raise my hand to that as well. I don't know a single person that wants less money. Do you? That just naturally was like, you know what? I wish I was making less. That would be awesome. I don't know a single person. If you give me the option of making a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, I'm gonna take a million dollars every single time. If you give me the option of a hundred thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars, I'm gonna take the hundred thousand option every time. Anybody disagree with me? Oh gosh, I'm just kidding. You're brave. Um, no, every time. I don't know a single person. People just naturally want more money. It's just the, like we just naturally want that. Money is a desire of all people in some sort of way. But listen to me. If you do not pay attention to it, the love of money can creep in and begin to strangle the life out of you. I want to say that again, but I want you to really swallow it. If you do not pay attention to it, the love of money can creep in and begin to strangle the life out of you. And by the way, the love of money is not determined by if you are a spender or a saver. When I say that, do you guys know what you are personally? Like, I'm a spender or I'm a saver. Do you guys know what you are? I, I know what I, I'll tell you what I am. Uh, but lately I've been doing some, um, a lot of marriage counseling, premarital counseling, and this is what we talk about in like one of the sessions is finances because it's important to know the person you marry, like what they are, if they're a natural spender or if they're a natural saver. I am a natural spender. I love spending money. Where are my spenders at? Come on, somebody, amen. 
Ah, we are God's people. Yes. I'm kidding. Where am I? Uh, do you know you're a saver? Anybody know you're a saver? You're a penny pincher? Gosh, you're just boring. You're so boring. <laughs> you're a saver? Yeah, the love of money is not defined by whether you are a spender or a saver. Because here's, I'll tell you what. You can be a saver and what you can say, this doesn't happen all the time, but what you can say by saving is I'm finding my security in money. You can be a spender and quite possibly what you're doing is you're finding your enjoyment in possessions, in the things that you spend your money on. So for example, my wife and I, we are totally different. I'm a spender. She's a saver. I go to my favorite store right now is Costco. That's how old I am, y'all. That just reveals my age. I love this place. I discovered it recently, and I thought, who has been keeping me from this place? This is like heaven on earth. I love it. So I go in there, and as I walk the aisles, I just find things. I'm like, I want to buy that. Like, I feel like I need that. The other day, I walked in there and saw some knives, like some cooking knives, cutting knives. And I thought, we don't have those. We should have those. Why do we not have those? Let's buy them. They're like 15 bucks. So I bought them. I bought knives because I need knives. My wife is the very opposite. She's the penny pincher, will not buy anything. Like I could not buy, I could not get her to buy shoes if she wanted to. This is crazy, right? Fellas, I got it good. I got it good. She doesn't spend any money. I spend all the money she saved, right? But the, the challenge for both of us is that I can find the enjoyment in life in my possessions because I love just having stuff. The challenge for her is she can find her security in money. So she needs a certain amount in the bank account for her to feel secure. I need a certain amount of things for me just to have fun. So the love of money is not decided by whether you are a spender or a savior. It can be in all of us, no matter who you are. So oftentimes we make the issue of money and wealth like an individual matter, like the scriptures just kind of say, well, you know, here's a couple principles, but it's, it's up to everyone just to decide on their own. But that could not be further from the truth. And so I want to give you a few areas in scripture that talk about wealth. Actually, did you know that uh, Jesus speaks on the subject of economic wealth more than he does any other social issue? Isn't that crazy? He speaks on the subject of economic wealth more than he does any other social issue issue in scripture. So I want to give you a few uh, illustrations. The Bible deals decisively with the inner spirit of slavery that an attachment to wealth brings. In Psalm chapter 62, it says, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. In other words, if you get more money, set, do not attach your heart or your security to that. The 10th commandment is against covetousness which is essentially the inner lust to have things. Solomon writes in Proverbs, he who trusts in his riches will wither. Jesus declared war in the New Testament on the materialism of that day. The Aramaic term for wealth in that time is mammon, and Jesus condemns it as a rival God. In Luke chapter 16, he says this, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon is the word that's used there. You cannot serve God and money or the lust for wealth. 
Later in the same chapter, he tells a story of a rich farmer who centered in hoarding his possessions. We would call that smart and prudent. Jesus called him a fool. In Matthew chapter 13, he states that if we really want the kingdom of God, we must be willing to sell everything we have to get it. This is what Jesus said. So here's my question for you tonight. If in a comparatively simple society, Jesus lays such strong emphasis on the spiritual dangers of wealth, how much more should we, who live in a highly affluent culture, take seriously our attachment to wealth? If he made it a big deal back then, do you think it should be a big deal to us? I would propose to you, yes. And yet more than likely 90% of you are bored of this talk already because it doesn't seem like a big deal. It's a huge deal. So what does it mean to be simple? What does it mean to live a simplistic life? Let's talk about it. Simplicity takes root inwardly and gets modeled outwardly. At its core, it is a focus on Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 33. So I want to read that. If you're taking notes, write that down. You can read some of it later. We're going to show it on the screen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. It says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Look, look at this verse. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He's not saying clothes are a bad thing. He's not saying food is a bad thing. But do you add any hours to your life by worrying about them? And then he says, above all of those, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Richard Foster in the book Celebration of Discipline says this. He says, the central point for the discipline of simplicity is to seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of his kingdom first. And then everything necessary will come in its proper order. Listen to me. An inward attitude of simplicity is the deep belief that Jesus is the number one possession of my life. It's the deep belief that he is my number one possession. He is my priority, and he is the deepest desire of my heart. If that is true, it means that he sits on the throne of my life. 
It means he sits on the throne of my life. It means he is the number one thing in my life. In Genesis, it says that God created man and then gave him things. God created man and gave him things. So within man was God, but without, on the outside of man were things. How kind of God that he would bless man with tons of things, right? The problem is we began to let the things that he blessed us with enter the within that he was supposed to take ownership of. I heard somebody say one time, uh, having money is not a problem. The problem is when money has you. So having money is not an issue, but when money has a grip on you, that's the issue. There's another quote by uh, A.W. Tozer who writes in The Pursuit of God, the book The Pursuit of God. He says this, Our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine and things were allowed to enter. In other words, we kicked him off the throne of our heart and other things were allowed to enter. Men and women have now, by nature, no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. But there in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight among themselves for first place on the throne. In other words, we have let things come in and they are fighting for first place, the place that only God should have. We've allowed the things that God has given to us to be blessings in our life to become actual gods in our lives. They've replaced him. This is why almost always when someone comes back from a trip to like a third world country or another world country, they always say the same exact thing. These people have so little, and yet they have so much more joy than me. How many of you have heard that before? These people have so little these followers of Christ, they have nothing. They possess nothing, yet they have so much more joy than I do. And it is because they do not have the possessions or the riches or the wealth, the mammon in their heart sitting on the throne where God is supposed to be sitting. You and I have that struggle in our culture today. If you are a child of God, I want you to know this. He will stop at nothing to eradicate whatever is on the throne in your life until he is the sole treasure of your heart. Let me say that one more time. He will stop at nothing to eradicate, to get rid of whatever is on the throne in your life until he is the sole treasure of your heart. He will stop at nothing. There are times in your life when God will allow you to feel the weight of scarcity, of not having much. Most of you are in college or you're in that age where you don't have a lot of money, right? Amen? So there are times in your life where God will allow you to feel the weight of scarcity so that then you can experience him as your provider. How else will you know that he is your provider if you've never needed provision for anything? There are times in your life where God will allow you to sit under the weight of sickness so that you can understand and experience him as your healer. There are times in your life where God will allow you to feel the weight of pain so that you can feel the presence of his comfort. How else will you know him as these things if you've never experienced the opposite, if you've never been in a situation of need for those things? Now, I don't believe that God authors poverty 
or sickness, but I believe that he can use it. I don't think he's the author of it, but I believe he can use it. The scriptures say that uh, he will cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him. So even in poverty, in scarcity, in the third world countries of people that have nothing, he can cause good. Even in sickness, he can cause good. And there are times when in those situations, only in those situations, can you understand him, can you experience him as your healer, as your provider, as your comforter. I love the story of Abraham in the Old Testament. If you don't read the Old Testament, you should go home and read the Old Testament tonight. There's a story about Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 specifically, where it's uh, about him and his son Isaac. And Abraham and Sarah, his wife, they could not have a son for a long time, so they go through this struggle of not having kids. And then finally, basically, because of a miracle that takes place, Sarah conceives a son. God gives him this promised son, and they were both like 100 years old, right? Stupid old for them to have kids. So this son, Sarah has a son. Finally, Abraham has this son, loves him dearly. And they have this amazing, like, father-son love. You can read about it in the story. And then Abraham walks through Isaac into his teenage years, and they have this bond between father and son that only father and son have. It's an incredible love for one another. And then the unthinkable thing happens. And it even, like, pains me to, to tell the story of Abraham and Isaac. The unthinkable happens. God shows up to Abraham, speaks to him, and says, I want you to sacrifice your son on a burnt offering. Really crazy, like it's even uncomfortable saying, right? He tells them this wild thing. And Abraham's sitting in this place of obviously incredible discomfort and incredible, like, what the heck? This son you have delivered to me through a miracle, now you're asking me to do this. And this living in this tension of what do I do? Abraham is like, what do I do? And he decides to obey God. And the story really hides out some of the details, but I can just imagine the pain and the angst of why am I doing this? Why is God asking me to do this? And there's even this moment where Abraham and Isaac are walking to the burnt offering. Isaac has no idea what's about to happen. And he gets there and he says to his father, Abraham, he says, dad, I see the wood and the sticks, but there is no goat. What they would usually sacrifice. And Abraham says, God's going to provide it. And the story goes on to say that Abraham even gets to the point of tying his son up and he even gets the knife in his hand and prepares to kill his own son because that's what God told him to do. And then at just the right time, an angel comes down and says to Abraham, do not go forward. And essentially says, I was not meaning for you to actually kill your son. I wanted to test to see who was sitting on the throne of your heart. I wanted to test you to see who was sitting on the throne of your heart? Listen, like I said earlier, God will stop at nothing to eradicate anything that is on the throne of your heart so that you will replace him with it. And the story of Abraham used to pain me to even say until I started understanding the context for it. And the Bible says that Abraham was a rich man. The, most, the richest man to ever live. He had everything, silver, gold, land, everything you could imagine. He had it all. And yet God was relentless at making sure Abraham knew 
that everything he possessed, even his family, was God's. Everything he possessed was God. And I want to challenge you tonight that he wants to do the same for you and me. That he wants to reign unchallenged on the throne of your heart. He wants you, above all else, to seek him first. And the problem is most of us say that we seek him first, while at the same time we live in anxiety about our lack, or we live in bondage about our possessions. The problem is that most of us say we seek him first, all the while we're living in anxiety about our lack, the things that we don't have. Or the opposite, we're living in bondage to our possessions. And what really has it, if we were to, if we were to kind of peel away the layers of our heart, what really has the throne of our heart is either the anxiety about what we do not have, or it's the possession of the things that we do have. What if God has withheld from you blessings in the form of finances or possessions because he knows it would take first place in your life if he gave it to you? What if the lack that you're living in now is because God knows if you had it, it would take first place and he will not allow that to happen? That is why it's important for you, even as a college student who may feel like I got no money, <laughs> for you to begin to live out simplicity. Can I live a life detached from the need of wealth and possessions? Three inner realities of simplicity. If you're truly simplistic, these would take place in your heart. You would understand that what we have is a gift from God, all of it. Every breath you take, everything you own, every opportunity you get, every talent you have, every skill you have is a gift from God. You are simply living in the grace of God that he would give you these things. Second thing, not only what we have is a gift from God, but what we have is God's to care for. It's not mine to care for, it's his. I don't have to hold tightly to things so close. I don't have to protect things so closely. It's his to care for, not mine. Third, what we have is available to others. I don't have to cling to my stuff because I'm not anxious about tomorrow. I would propose to you that most of us cling to the things that we have or cling to the money that we have and we don't live a generous life because we're anxious about tomorrow. And yet the verse we just read in Matthew tells us to do the opposite. Doesn't he feed the birds? They don't worry. So when you are anxious about your future, you hold tightly to things. And it's the opposite of living a simplistic life. I have never known people who foolishly gave too much. I've never sat down with someone and said, hey, bro, I think you're giving away too much. <laughs> Keep some things to yourself. However, I have known people who selfishly keep too much. And likely you do too. 
I have sat down with people and go, you're stingy. You're greedy. You don't give away anything. So the question is this, how do you practice simplicity? Jared, you can go ahead and come back up. How do you practice simplicity? We've talked about the inner reality. It's an inner attitude of simplicity that you got to have, of understanding that what I have is all God's, understanding that it's his to care for, and understanding that what I have is meant to be given to others. Those are inner attitudes. Those are inner realities. However, it is not an inner reality until there is an outward expression. Here's what I mean. If you don't actually begin to live simplistically, it never took root in your heart. If you don't actually like walk out a simplistic life, then those things are not really in you. So how do you walk out a simplistic life? Just a few things and I'm done. Number one, let me give you a few suggestions. And if you read that book, there's a ton of them. But I want to give you three that I think directly apply to uh, maybe where you're at in your stage of life. Number one, we're going to have it on the screen. Number one is this. Rejecting purchasing things because of status. Just practical, the next three things. Just real practical. If you find yourself purchasing things because of how it makes you appear or the status that it gives you, I believe that's a red flag that ought to go up in your mind. If you find yourself only purchasing things because of the status that it gives you, and this will be a lifelong journey for you, if you purchase a car because of how it makes you look, and really it wasn't like a need, I think that's a red flag. If you purchase clothes because and you purchase expensive clothes that are way out of your budget you don't have money for because it's going to make you look a certain way, that's not a simplistic life. That's the opposite of simplicity. And here's how you fight that, just to be real candid with you, real honest with you. So I have a love for shoes. Anybody? Anybody have a love for shoes? So my love is for shoes, and um, I love buying new shoes, and honestly, I like, I like buying clothes too. It's fun. And... Um, so what I've done to kind of practice this in my life because I will go out, like I just love buying new shoes all the time. And so what I found is that it can kind of become like an addiction to me that I always just have to have new, new stuff, new stuff. So here's what I've done. I've adopted this in my life. There are times where I feel like God's pressing me into a season of going like a month without buying any new like clothing or shoe wear. And so I'll say, you know what? This is what I'm just going to go into, a whole month without buying anything. Or there are times where I've gone six months without buying new shoes because I felt like it was becoming something in my heart that I was attached to, like I had to have this new stuff. So get me on this. It's not a matter of can I afford it or not. It's a matter of my heart being attached to it. It's a matter of I can't live content with what God has given me. I have to have the next thing. I have to have the new thing. And I want to challenge you that perhaps getting into a disciplined spiritual growth path, God would want to take you on a simplistic path to get you into it. Because maybe your heart is attached to the possessions, the wealth, the clothing, the status, whatever it is. Maybe your heart is attached to that and God wants to get that off the throne of your heart and replace it with himself. 
So, rejecting purchasing things because of status. Number two, I would encourage you to look with healthy skepticism at all buy now, pay later schemes. Just practical for you right now in your life, anything that says you can buy now and pay later, aka debt, ought to be just a red flag in your mind. There are some things I believe in life you can't avoid, things like school, You may not be able to avoid debt in that situation. Things like a car, you may have to take on a payment. Things like a house, you may have to take on a payment. Outside of those three things, if you are getting yourself into debt so that you can purchase stuff to make you appear a certain way, it is the opposite of a simplistic life. And I would challenge you to lean into simplicity, maybe just for a season to see what God could do and how he could grow you. Yeah, let's go to number three. Number three, develop a habit of giving things away. I want to encourage you tonight to develop a habit of giving things away. When was the last time you gave something away that maybe you could sell and make a little money off of? God, that hurts me. Most of us are just so attached to, I got to have a little bit more. I got to have a little bit more. And yet Jesus is really, really passionate about you not being attached to more money, more wealth, more possessions, more anything that would cause you to seek those things before you seek his kingdom. And let me encourage you with this. If you chase after the outward expressions, those three things, without having the inner reality, the inner conviction that I seek first his kingdom, It's not worth it. Don't do the outward expressions if you don't have the inner, I'm going to seek first his kingdom first. (laughs) Seek first his kingdom. That's what's most important. And so I hope and I pray that tonight and maybe the next few weeks that the Holy Spirit would speak to you and challenge you on what it is that you could lean into that would propel you, that would launch you into a growth. And let me just be honest with you. You don't get to reject it just because you don't like it. You don't get to reject simplicity just because you don't like the idea of it. In fact, if you're convicted of it tonight, it's probably the thing you need to lean into the most. So what would it look like for you just to give it a shot? Perhaps if you've been stale in spiritual growth, you've been stagnant, you haven't been where you want to be, you haven't been on the path that you want to be on, perhaps simplicity could launch you into it. Let me pray over you, and then we'll worship together. Father, I believe this is uh, way more than just talking about spending money. This is way more than just wise, a wise way to live. This goes way deeper than that. But Father, only you can take it deeper, and so I ask that you would do that. Right now, just in the stillness of this space, 
where you're sitting, would you just ask God to convict you of the opposite of a simplistic life? It's not law. It's not you must live simplistic or you won't get to heaven or it's not not a must. But it's an invitation. It's an opportunity to experience God on a different level, an opportunity to get in a growth path that you've never been in before. So Holy Spirit, just as you're convicting, I ask that you would give courage to those who need it. For some of us, this is uh, much more difficult than others. But God, I believe each person in this room under the sound of my voice is here for a reason and so it's not by accident that this is the message they're hearing. So God, thank you that in your kindness you would draw us into a path that we could grow closer to you. Thank you that in your grace you would help us grow. Thank you that in your grace you would meet us right where we're at when it's the opposite of simplistic. And give us what we need to move forward. So Lord, we confess tonight we want to build our life on you. Nothing else. Lord, we want you to be the center. We want you to have the throne. We want you to be who we seek first. We want none other to sit on that place. We want you alone. So we confess and we declare that we build our life on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.